Blog Talk Radio. Field here out in Oakland to celebrate the 58th anniversary of Bill Mazeroski's infamous home run, known as the greatest home run of all time and arguably the greatest sporting moment of all time as the Pittsburgh Pirates capped off an unbelievable World Series victory in the seventh game of the 1960 World Series on the 50th anniversary here. <clears throat> so I'm going to read... Um, book called The Greatest Best Game Ever by Jim Reisler. It pretty much recaps um, the 1960 World Series Game 7 for you. And we're just going to read a little bit from the book here throughout the show, uh, and we'll get to your calls if you have any. So, it had been apparent since the big left-field long guys clock at Forbes Field struck 2 p.m. the previous day that uh, there would be a Game 7. That was about the time Bobby Richardson of the Yankees rifled a third inning triple off Pirates center Bob Friend into another of the ballpark's spacious outfield gaps, this one between right and center. 
the blow, Richardson's ace base hit of the series, drove home a boatload of Yankee runners, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, and Elston Howard, who had all singled. It put the New Yorkers up 6 nothing in Game 6 and sealed another lopsided loss, the seemingly overmatched Pirates. By the time the day's bloodletting had ended, the Yankees, behind Whitey Ford's complete game, seven hit shutouts, had won a route, 12 nothing. The shellacking was typical of the way the Yanks had banged around the Pirates pitchers most of the series, now tied at three apiece. When the Yankees won games in the 1960 World Series, they won by a lot. Through six games, the Yankees had created a new standard of excess and their three lopsided wins, bludgeoning the Pirate pitching staff almost at will by smashing home runs and extra base hits to distant parts of both Yankee Stadium and Forbes Field. In addition to the 12 nothing pummeling in Game 6, the Yankees had won 16-3 in Game 2 and 10 nothing in Game 3, outscoring the Pirates in routes by 35 runs overall. Through six games, the New Yorkers had scored 46 runs to the Pirates' 16, batted a collective 341, 100% ahead of Pittsburgh, and walloped eight home runs, several of them tape measure shots on the to the Pirates' lone long ball in Game 1 from second baseman Bill Mazeroski. More telling were the troubles of the normally dependable Pittsburgh pitching staff, a group reliant on sinker ballers whose sinker ballers weren't sinking, which ballooned the team's ERA to 6.79. Given the ridiculous bulge in the three Yankee wins, Red Smith of the Herald Tribune posed the obvious question and the answer to, quote, what are the Jokers still hanging around for? He asked the Pirates, why haven't the Yankees wrapped it up and gone fishing? The answer is that Vernon Law was Pittsburgh's starting pitcher in two games, and Roy Fates was Pittsburgh's reliever in three. After game six, the writers almost seemed blasé about the latest case of Yankee excess, in this case, 17 hits and 27 total bases before the third and route to Jason Friend, an 18-game regular season winner in the series' hard luck case. Baffling to many pundits was how the Pirates had somehow hung in there all the way to Game 7 by winning the close games. And what the New York Daily News called the most extreme up-and-down series ever played. Even Mantle, not normally given to introspection, admitted that all those runs didn't mean much when you lost the close games. Quote, I wish I could have saved them for a time when they meant something. He said, referring to his two home runs after Game 2, which the Yankees won by 13. For Red Smith, quote, it became painfully apparent today that if baseball is ever going to catch on in Pittsburgh, they've got to bring in Lindsey and Krauss or Brennan Behan or maybe even Walt Disney to freshen up the script. Taking the lordly Yankees to his seventh game was a Pirates team that was good but hardly great. No Pirate had driven in 100 runs or hit 25 home runs. Their collective power numbers were exceedingly average, and they stole a few bases. Some of them didn't even look much like ballplayers, especially the squat catcher, Smokey Burgess who looked barely fit enough to make the Moose Lodge softball team. Sure, the Pirates had future Hall of Famers, Roberto Clemente and Bill Mazeroski, but their stars were still some years away. The remaining players mostly competent to very good major leaguers, writes Pirates historian Bob Smyzik, but they came together. Did they ever? The first six games of the 1960 World Series were a microcosm of the Pirates' entire year. Blown out in those three losses, they had scratched and clawed to three close wins with good pitching when it counted, solid defense, timely hitting, and aggressive base running. As in the regular season, 
and Pirates just hadn't gone away. They were a team with a major dose of mojo and a new hero just about every day. In Game 1, on October 5th at Forbes Field, Law and Face had held down the big Yankee bats while Mazeroski nailed his home run, a two-run shot, and center fielder Bill Vernon, a one-time Yankee farmhand, robbed Yogi Bear of a two-run double and maybe more of making a spectacular catch against the 407-foot center field wall to ensure the 6-4 win. That stunt in center wrecked us, said Stengel. But games two and three were so lopsided in favor of the Yankees that betters rewrote the odds to make the Yankees 5-1 to one favorites to take the series. United Press International reported that some bookies were so confident of a New York blowout that they were refusing any more wagers. But in Game 4, the Pirates bounced back just as they'd done all year at Yankee Stadium. Again, combined to quiet the big, booming New York bats. And Bill Vernon made another sensational run-saving catch and drove in a couple with a single on the team's three-run six. The final was 3-2 to two Pirates, even the series, at two games each. Then in Game 5, Harvey Haddix, with relief help from who else but Face, paced the Pirates to a 5-2 to two win to send Pittsburgh back to Forbes Field ahead, somehow, three games to two. While the first six games of the series had been a showcase for Yankee firepower, they'd also exposed each team's deficiencies. Behind, beyond Whitey Ford, the Yankees had little pitching depth, particularly among the starters. Nor did the Pirates get a chance to display what had really defined them in 1960, a gritty knack to win by coming from behind, which they had done in their final inning at bat an absurdly high 23 times, including 12 times with two outs in the ninth. We never, ever thought we were out of it, says Grote. At that point, the series had been far from a classic, with the Yankees' three blowout wins so uneven and anticlimactic. Quote, that pity for the Pirates was a predominant emotion, wrote Roy Terrell of Sports Illustrated. If suspense existed in the three early Pirates victories, it was there merely because of an awareness of what the Yankee hitters might do, not because of what they did. While Law and Face had pitched like they could, the series had been a bitter disappointment for Bob Friend, the Pirates' bulldog of an 18-game winner, who had been on the losing side in games two and six. With the series down to game seven, the bookmakers were still adjusting the odds this time installing the Yankees as 7-5 to five favorites to prevail. These were the Yankees, after all. The team of Casey Stengel, Mickey Mantle, and Yogi Berra. The team with history on its side. The team that was sports' longest-running dynasty. The Yankees had dominated the 1950s, taking eight pennants and six world titles, and ruled the 40s, 30s, and 20s, too. It was as if Mantle, Joe DiMaggio's successor in center field, had inherited the aura and mythology of all the legends who preceded him. Ruth, Gehrig, Huggins, someone throw the ball, Stengel yelled one day, as he implored a Yankee out there to find the ball that landed near the Yankee Stadium monuments. The Pirates? Sure. They had been decent once upon a time, but it had been 33 years since they'd even been to a series, an era marked by lean times and a reputation for lousy baseball. Even team owner Bing Crosby couldn't resist a dig. Quote, do they still have Pirates in America? Dorothy Lamour asked him in the 1952 film, Road to you. Yeah, but there's nothing to worry about. Crosby cracked. They're probably hiding in the cellar somewhere. That is an excerpt of the best game ever. Pirates vs. Yankees on this date in 1960 by Jim Reiser. We'll recap the uh, ninth chapter of the book later on. We are here at Forbes Field, the site of Forbes Field uh, in Oakland, for the 50th anniversary of the Mazeroski home run. And as said, it, in my opinion, it's the greatest upset in all sports. Um, 
You know, the Yankees, Vaughn, as I said, they outscored the Pirates by a total of 46 runs in the series, and the Pirates just somehow were able to pull off the victory uh, in an outstanding fashion. Um, later on today, I believe at 3.30, there will be a large crowd of people who will uh, stand by to uh, listen to the uh, broadcast, to watch it, and uh, celebrate again. Um, it sent the pit- city of Pittsburgh uh, into hysteria, um, <clears throat> and it was just a fantastic overall achievement for the city as they were just a lousy ball club. They didn't make the World Series before until 1927 when they lost to the murderous row, 27 Yankees, but they were back in somehow, some way, Overcoming all odds, they were able to ensure the victory, uh, hitting a ball just uh, behind me, uh, the wall at Forbes Field. Um, he hit it over the, uh, I believe, the 457-feet uh, sign, which, if you know anything about baseball, uh, PNC Park today is 410 feet to the notch in left field, and it is considered a blast if you hit it that far. Most home runs do not even touch the 450-foot mark. And Mazeroski, the light-hitting second baseman, he did a home run in uh, game one of the World Series, but he was the seventh batter uh, in the game. And, uh, you know, the Pirates, they had a lead in the game. They were up uh, going into that ninth inning. I believe the score was – it was 5-4 to four going into the eighth, but the Pirates were able to uh, reclaim a lead – but the Yankees, they fought back, tie up the game, um, and cause uh, the Pirates to have to win it in the series. <clears throat> um, overall, as I said, it wasn't just the Mazeroski home run that made this the best game ever. It was the back and forth. You know, they had Roberto Clemente leading the team. Bill Mazeroski, they were far off in their prime. This was 1960. Clemente's career didn't come to an end until 1971. He was still an up-and-coming player. And really, this was a bunch of overachievers. Um, they hit singles. They were contact hitters. Really a lot like the Pirates were um, in 2018. They weren't big power hitters. They were contact hitters. But this 60 team, they found ways to win games. They were notable for coming back. 24 times they walked, uh, were down in the ninth inning, and were able to come back. 12 of those 24 times with two outs. And this team was just able – to get the job done when they needed to get the job done. Um, Jim Rice wrote this book, a fantastic book, if you do want to check it out. Um, <clears throat> I definitely suggest reading it. It is lengthy, counts everything from this Game 7, and really a lot of the series, you know, there are player interviews in this. Um, the New York Daily News uh, loved it. They say it's a front-row ticket to the most extreme up-and-down series ever played that brings to life the epic finale of the 1960 World Series. Um, it's a 269-page book. There's a chapter for every inning, and it really just shows how fantastic of a comeback this was. I mean, there are Cinderella stories, but this was a Cinderella story of all Cinderella stories. You know, Pittsburgh, the little steel town, going up against huge market, New York Yankees, as I said, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, staying to at the helm. This team had dominated baseball. There was no team like the New York Yankees. And the Pittsburgh Pirates, just as they did all season in 1960, were able to overcome odds. As, it, as is often said in baseball, for example, when the Pirates lost this year 
twice in one week. Uh, they gave up 17 runs, got absolutely smoked. It was, I think it was 34-6 to six, uh, against Dodgers and Phillies run differential. But if you can win the close games, that's how you can win a series. Um, and that's what the Pittsburgh Pirates showed. There's never been a uh, Game 7 walk-off home run to end a World Series. There have been walk-offs, uh, such as Joe Carter, I believe, in 1986. Uh, to, for the Blue Jays in Game 6, uh, was Luis Martinez in 2001 walked off uh, Game 7 with a single against the Yankees off of Mariano Rivera. Kind of funny that the Yankees, uh, two out of the three walk-off hits to end the World Series they've been the victim of. But they do have the 27 World Series titles. <clears throat> uh, we got to get to the mailbag, I believe. Um, I promise that uh, even though this is a Maserati show, it's a celebration of his 58th uh anniversary of his home run. I do want to get to the mailbag. And uh, Sam Mistretta asked uh, for us to talk a little about potential trades. So for the next couple minutes, we'll dive into what the Pirates really should do this offseason to bolster their chances in 2019. So for potential trades, um, the pitching rotation really is set. You know, you have Jameson Town who's going to be the ace of the staff. Trevor Williams or Chris Archer you can put in as a two. Uh, Joe Musgrove as a four. And Yvonne Nova should be the five. And, you know, if any of those pitchers get hurt, struggle, you have guys like Nick Kingham who can come in, Stephen Brault, uh, Clay Holmes, and Mitch Keller should be ready if needed. Um, in the bullpen, solid back end. You know, Vasquez in the ninth, Keller in the eighth, Crick in the seventh. Richard Rodriguez will serve as the main uh, middle relief guy with Stephen Brault as the long relief. Uh, I've mentioned several times on the podcast, I believe that we should sign Trevor Rosenthal. Um, low-risk, high-reward type guy can fill in for Edgar Santana in 2019. Another potential option would be Sergio Romo. So I don't think any potential trades on the pitching market, but um, Trevor Rosenthal and Sergio Romo, I believe Rosenthal is the must-get. Sergio Romo is the semi-get uh, in that situation. Uh, in terms of batting, I've said this. We need to re-sign Jordy Mercer. The shortstop market, the one guy that we know the Pirates are not going to be in for is Manny Machado. He's way out of the Pirates' price range. Um, some potential other guys you got, Jose Iglesias, uh, Danny Echeverria maybe bring back, and Freddie Galvis. Um, but what I would really want the Pirates to do if they do decide to go out and get a shortstop would be to um, either re-sign Jordy Mercer or trade for a veteran uh, shortstop to back up Kevin Newman. I want Jordy Mercer or whatever veteran shortstop we bring in to be a Clint Barmas-esque player uh, to bring Kevin Newman along um, as that's what he needs. Jordy Mercer needed Clint Barmas. Kevin Newman, either's going to need a Jordy Mercer or somebody similar to him. Um, I believe the money can be better spent elsewhere. And that's the only trade I think the Pirates should make. They might look to trade for a veteran right fielder, but that could that's solvable on the free agent market, Sam. And um, I really don't think that we really need to make many moves. The team is set. Most of them is returning. Some notable uh, guys will be leaving are Josh Harrison, potentially Jordy Mercer. But overall, the team will be intact for next year. Most of the guys that formed the core of the 2018 team will be back for our mailbag. Let's head to the ninth inning of the excerpt from Jim Reister and see uh, how he recaps it. 
three more outs. Three more outs Dick Grote told himself as the Pirates took their possessions for the ninth. With his team ahead in the later stages of the game, the Pirate captain often repeated those words like a mantra, staying focused by counting down the game's final outs. Normally, the Pittsburgh pitcher would be Elroy Face, but Murtaugh had removed him for a pinch hitter. So in from the bullpen, Church with a hard-throwing right-hander Bob Friend, anxious to wrap things up and atone for his hard luck World Series performance is to date. Two starts and two tough losses. But Friend was a good choice, a dependable veteran right-hander with steadiness appropriate to the situation. There was no need for the proper righty-lefty matchup that you get today. Friend was ready, relatively fresh, having gone less than three innings in Game 6, and the best Murtaugh could offer. But these were the Yankees, the team that always seemed to find a way, especially during the 1960 World Series, when not just the sluggers, but the role players were having their way as Pirates pitchers. A case in point was the hot-hitting Richardson, who was leading off the Yankee inning for the fourth time of the afternoon and looking for his 11th hit of the World Series. Taking no chances, Murtaugh kept Haddock warming in the bullpen and added another backup lefty vinegar, Ben Mizell. Friends started Richardson with a strike, and a roar went out from the expectant crowd, sensing victory. But then Richardson, quote, the pest, as Myron Cope had coined him, did what he'd been doing throughout the series, delivering a timely base hit. This one, a fly ball single dunked in the shallow left center to raise his series banner to his stratospheric 367. That gave Stingle some serious some options. Instead of light-hitting Deme Stray, who was due up, he could resort to one of the Yankees' bats on the bench as a setup for the powerful heart of his team's order. So the Yankee manager called on 34-year-old Dale Long, whose left-handed power had suited the short portrait at Forbes Field back in 56, when for the Pirates, he had knocked those eight home runs in as many games. Hitless in two at-bats in his first World Series, Long was anxious to reach base. In this case, Long's goal was decidedly modest. Get a good pitch and drive it into right field to put two runners on base for the big boppers. He fouled off Friend's first pitch, then let a high one go by, even in the count at 1-1. One one. Then Long took a hefty roundhouse hack, as he'd done a million times in batting practice, and lashed the ball on a line. The ball went skipping exactly where he wanted it, into the right field corner where Clemente played it on a hop off the wall. Standing on first base, Long took stock, of the fact that despite 101 lifetime big league home runs and a reputation as a slugger, first World Series base hit, a 300-foot single to keep the Yankees alive. With two runners on base, there wasn't time for a reflection. That's because Danny Murtaugh was headed to the mound to retrieve the struggling Bob Friend. The Pirates' ace went into scream, having just added a final exclamation point to his 1960 World Series frustration. He, run, he had run into a buzzsaw of a team on a streak, one of the few downsides of a distinguished career, gazing toward the Pirate bullpen and surrounded by his infielders. Murtaugh selected his new pitcher, Haddix. In retrospect, Stengel could have encountered with a move himself. Just why he didn't remove lumbering Long for a pinch runner has never been adequately explained. Long hadn't stolen a base for two seasons and was about the last man the Yankees would want on base in the late innings of Game 7 of the World Series. Bob Serb was available, but he wasn't fast, and Stengel would want to hold him out in the event of extra innings. But the other available bench player was McDougald, who at 32 had lost a step, but who knew his way around the bases and could always stay in at second, third, or short. Watching from his seat in the auxiliary press box, 
broadcaster, Nellie King, thought to himself, McDougald should be in there. Hags would be pitching on a three days rest, having on six and one third innings in game five, win at Yankee Stadium. At five foot nine and a half inches, the Pirate Lefty looked almost too slight to take on the heart of the Yankee order, seemingly as much a mixed match as a little leaguer facing the high school varsity. But he entered the game confident and cool as ice, as Hoke put it, standing on the mound as the new Pirate pitcher arrived. Hoke urged him on. Damn it, Harv, we've come this far, the third baseman told him. Let's get those two guys out of here and go home. Haddock just chomped on his gum and pared the situation down to the basics. Well, I've got Maris up there, he, told, he said to himself. Uh, just better pitch him low and see what happens. As Haddock told his warm-up, took his warm-up tosses on the Forbes Field mound, there came a jarring reminder of how tantalizingly close the Pirates were to sewing up their first series title in 35 years. An announcement from PA man Art McKinnon that all uninformed officers on the second and third tier should report to the bleacher gate, from which they would bring the field after the game. The prospect of a post-game celebration. That unleashed a roar from the Forbes Field faithful. Standing on second, Richardson turned to Mazeroski. It's lucky we don't play ball games like this one all the time. Cracked the Yankees' second slacker to the Pirate second sacker. Every player in the country would have ulcers. Haddock stared, started Maris with a ball low, then jammed him on the wrist, hoping to coax a swing and a pop-up a little too late, and then a towering pop behind him where Smith, circled under it to perhaps 10 feet back off the plate, threw away his mask, and made the catch. The Pirates had secured one precious out in the Yankees' night as the crowd roared its approval. Upset with himself for going hitless in five tries in Game 7, Maris flung his bat to the ground and stalked back to a seat in the dugout. Two, two on, one gone. And to the plate stepped Mantle, batting right hand. And Mantle was just the man the Pirates did not want to see. Crouched at bat like a cat waiting to uncoil. Mantle let a low outside pitch go for ball one, then lined it decisive single into the right field alley. His third base hit of the game and his tenth of the series. Richardson sailed home and slow-footed long ran to third. Barely ahead of Clemente's throw, suddenly the Pirates were clinging to a 9-8 to eight lead. Both managers tinkered. Murtaugh started right-hander George Witt warming in the Pirate bullpen. Stengel dispatched Game 6 winner Whitey Ford to throw for the Yankees. Seeing the close play at third and taking hold of his senses, Stengel opted for speed finally and sent McDougald into the game to run for long. In the press box, King wondered what had taken him so long. Though McDougald, a 10-year big league veteran, hadn't said anything publicly, he and his wife Lucille had already decided he would retire after the series. With four young children at home and a growing business and weary of the travel, McDougald was making it the last of his 1,089 games in the majors, 53 of them in the World Series. Quote, I was saying to myself, wow, this is really it, he says. Haddock stuck to the scouting report, which advised to keep the ball low against Barra, a devastating high ball batter. Looking for a double ball play ball to end the game. Haddock threw low, but kept it inches off the plate, hoping to coax Barron to lunging and sending the ball somewhere toward the infield. Barrow was taken and got what he wanted, a ball. In the stands, the man who had been yelling in the vicinity of Mel Allen's microphone most of the afternoon cheered on his team's pitcher. Come on, Harvey, let's get two. That's just what Hags was thinking, sending the 1-0 in so low that it was almost in the dirt. The pirate pitcher was still looking in temp Barrow, but the Yankee batter took again, working the count to 2-0, a good hitter's count. On the mound, Haddock shifted his chewing gum under his lower lip and figured his moment of reckoning had arrived. He had no choice but to throw a strike this time. 
Gotta give him something now, he said to himself. Gotta take a chance. The two have pitched in the strike zone. Barrel lashed at the ball, meeting it squarely and sending a cannon shot on one hop toward first base, where Rocky Nelson, playing three steps from the line, scoops up the ball and stepped on the bag for the second out. By doing so, the Pirate first baseman removed the force from Mantle, meaning he could have tagged the Yankee baseman to create a double play and end the game. The odds favor Nelson stranded a good 10 feet from the bag. Mantle was in a base runner's no-man's land as he faced Nelson. What happened next was one of those rare plays that didn't make the box score, but offered a glimpse of an extraordinary athlete at the top of his game. Realizing he'd be out by a country mile if he turned a second and drew a throw, Mantle quickly turned the other way and dived safely back into first, wriggling like a snake to get there, as Red Smith put in the Herald Tribune to elude the Pirates' first baseman's frenetic tag. Mantle's left hand found the bag a split second ahead of Nelson's tag. The play allowed McDougald, who had broken from third with the crack he's about to score, tying the game at nine. We're going to skip ahead because we are running short on time here. Let's see where this is. Oh, no. Oh, no. Sorry I didn't have this earlier. Oh, where is it? Okay, okay, okay. Here we are. Oh, we're just going to do the inning. Facing left field wall is the ball to Spanish Stanley Park. Bear with a big number eight on his back. Form one of the most memorable images of the wildest World Series ever. Bear insisted 45 years later, Murray cast at the times that he thought the ball would strike the inside of the wall and stay in play. The Pirates had won the World Series. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you again on Saturday. Have a great week, everybody.